This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. For the second time since August, we have a non-game week to address here in Happy Valley. But there's plenty going on as Penn State awaits its bowl game destination. We get set for the transfer portal to open up next week. And, of course, recruiting is riding along as we get closer to the early signing period just a few weeks into December. We're going to hear from Tyler Calvaruso a little bit later here in this episode to break down the forecast for what we think Penn State will be prioritizing from a positional standpoint in the transfer portal when things really get going in that first week of December. That will carry on through the early stages of winter uh, beyond Penn State's bowl matchup. That bowl matchup, we don't know what it is yet, but along with Mark Brennan and Daniel Gowan, we'll bounce around some ideas about why it matters and where Penn State might be heading and, and the opponent that could be in play for the Nittany Lions, who are now number 10 in national rankings. And then we're, of course, going to break down what's look at what the outlook is for the offensive coordinator position. Could Manny Diaz be on the move as a defensive coordinator? Some really important spotlight spots there for Penn State and James Franklin as they work their way through the remainder of this 2023 season. And without further ado, Daniel Gallen and Mark Brendan were both in Ford Field at Detroit for Thanksgiving weekend. And Black Friday blowout for Penn State, 42 to nothing. Daniel joined me from Detroit to talk that one over on our post-game podcast. 12 post-game podcasts now in the books, fellas. Big shout-out to Daniel for doing that from the road five times over. And certainly for both of you for, for going on the road with this team every step of the way. We'll all be there for wherever they end up in a bowl matchup. Grace Brennan, our photographer, of course, will be uh, on, on deck for that one as well. But guys, we've got a little bit of a chance to catch our breath. Uh, not much, maybe maybe very little. Uh, but Mark, we always like to begin with you on these first episodes of a fresh week. We're not looking ahead to the next game. So let's look back to the last one, an impressive one for Penn State. Yeah, I mean, I think they got back to playing complementary football, right? I mean, we talked about that early in the season when they were doing well. It was the offense setting up the defense, the defense setting up the offense, the special teams doing things well. Sometimes early in the season, the special teams weren't so great, but that really picked up later in the year. But I think to kind of come around uh, in those final couple of games and get back to playing the way that you want to play, I think was important. I think it was also critical from a broader perspective. You know, this is the second straight year where they lost two tough games that everybody, you know, they lost the games that people thought they might lose. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they didn't, James Franklin never lost a team. 
you know, there was enough leadership that they were able to keep this thing together. And, you know, we'll see what the coming weeks uh, kind of hold in terms of what the bowl destination is and, and who's sticking around and who may may leave early to uh, start preparing for the draft or who may enter the portal. But to, to keep that ship together through the end of the regular season, I think speaks highly of the coaching staff, especially after you went through a significant change at offensive coordinator. And I think it speaks highly of the leadership of the team. You know, they played really well in that game. Obviously, Michigan State's a program uh, that, that that was in some some difficulty this year, but had one, two, or three going into that game. And, you know, it was their last game of the year. Uh, they knew they were playing the last game under a, a coach. Uh, guys kind of trying out for spots, move, moving forward, for lack of a better way of putting it. So there was some motivation there. And I think to put that together and play that well was really important. And finally, offensively, the balance. That's what we were looking for all year, right? You know, finally against a Big Ten opponent, you pass for, what, 303, you rush for 283. Was it the rush setting up the pass? Was it the pass setting up the rush? Who knows? Who cares? It worked both ways. And the fact that, you know, it didn't necessarily come easy early in the game, to me, is beside the point because ultimately they ended up getting that thing rolling, and I think they have a really good taste in their mouth going into this break before the bowl game. We're going to break down both sides of the ball, what we learned a little bit, what we're still wondering heading into December in just a moment. But Daniel, you and I spent a significant chunk of time toward the end of that podcast on a late Friday night, early Saturday morning, discussing the cultural impact of what we kind of witnessed from Penn State on Friday in Detroit. Not only did they finish that season strong, as Mark said, avoid some kind of letdown scenario, really the last two matchups coming off of, of the, the loss to Michigan and taking care of business against Rutgers in a 21-point victory, then obviously a 42 to nothing shellacking on the road against Michigan State. But to get the verification from, from Drew Aller, from Nick Singleton immediately after that, hey, we plan to be Penn State and Indy Lions in 2024. This is a bandwagon that we're not interested in leaving right now. What what have you kind of digested from your experience out there, what you heard, what you witnessed in Detroit, now that we're a few days removed here on a Tuesday morning? I think it just sort of sets the tone for the offseason, what Penn State, how Penn State is going to be set up going into 2024. I mean, we can project what the losses on the defensive side of the ball are going to be, and those are going to be pretty extensive. But at the same time, we, we've seen the <clears throat> the depth that Penn State has been able to accumulate there through recruiting and through a couple additions in the transfer portal. But I think to hear that from Aller and Singleton, um, that, that just kind of shows that James Franklin has these guys committed to a program. Uh, obviously, there are guys who commit to schools for different reasons, including coordinators, position coaches, et cetera. And if there's a change, sometimes that can cause players to waver here and there. Um, but I, I think that it speaks a little bit to the culture that James Franklin has created, that these guys are are both sticking around after, you know, in Aller's case, after the guy who recruited him to Penn State uh, has moved on. And in Singleton's case, sticking around after not having the the best season, not having a season that was up to his expectations, our expectations, probably the team's expectations. I know that James Franklin had a pretty thorough defense of Nick Singleton's season in terms of where he got better and how he got developed. Uh, at the same time, though, you're also judged on what you're doing and the numbers and the production, um, and that wasn't at the same level for Singleton. So um, I think the show that... He, not going to run 
uh, after having this sort of year. Um, I think that that also speaks speaks well. So I think there's always going to be attrition in the offseason, especially in, in this era of college football. I mean, it's Tuesday. The number of names we've seen uh, these past two, three days going into the portal for a variety of reasons, um, it, 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 some, some of them take you by surprise. But I do think that you know, hearing that, setting the tone, um, I think it sets the tone uh, for this offseason. Just to clarify, because Daniel's talking about guys jumping in the portal, they are. Um, you can do that when you have a coaching change. Your head coach leaves, and, and you've certainly seen coaches fired. You've seen coaches departing for other reasons now. Those players under their watch are now free to enter the portal, whereas players you know, here at Penn State, across the Big Ten, across the country, where their head coaches remain in that position next Monday, December 4th, is the day that has been circled for a while as one that's going to be pretty chaotic across college football. We're bracing for it at Lions 24-7. We do anticipate uh, some departures from this Penn State roster as December gets brewing. We also anticipate some new targets on the horizon for Penn State at multiple positions. As I said, we'll discuss that topic a bit more with Tyler Calvaruso. Mark, we could go in a few different directions for what the offense did to get right in this matchup. And, of course, Ty Howell and Jay Wan Sider have been the co-offensive coordinators here for the last couple of games. I think we got to start with Nick Singleton and, and, and that running game, though. We talked about these stats on the postgame podcast. I'm just going to reiterate it because they're that important for Penn State. Uh, prior to Friday night at Michigan against Michigan State, uh, Allen and Singleton's most uh, productive game together through the first 11 matchups of this season resulted in 175 total yards. So rushing, receiving combined, 175 total yards on 40 touches against Indiana. That's a 4.4 average between the two of them. Against Michigan State, 340 yards on 38 total touches. That's an 8.9 average. They got it done as receivers, as runners. The explosive plays were there for both of them on multiple occasions. Mark, it was everything that we dreamed of, and I'm sure Jaywan Sider dreamed of, and I'm sure Mike Yursich at one point dreamed of this summer, coming to fruition on a football field in Big Ten action. We're all going to wonder if they can sustain that momentum but, man, how much of a better situation is this for Nick Singleton, for Jaywan Sider, for everybody on the offense, the linemen, the tight ends, that we're going to spend these next few weeks saying, can you build off a big-time performance versus can you finally deliver one in game 13? Yeah, I'm just looking at the stats here because I thought it was a little bit ironic that, you know, the big play for Singleton that kind of shook him loose was in the first quarter, and it's it was a pass play. I mean, for 53 yards. And weren't we saying it kind of all season? It's like, this guy needs one thing to happen for him. He needs to pop one thing because he would have been this close, you know, whether it was kick returns, whether it was runs, whether it was in the passing game, and it finally did. And, th and then it, you could almost see the confidence in him. And, you know, I know people were looking at that game, you know, and, and kind of late in the fourth quarter, Singleton was still in there, and people may have been scratching their head. But I had no problem with that because this was a guy who was kind of struggling to find himself all year. And he finally kind of hits his stride literally and figuratively. And why would you want to take that away from him at, at that point? Give him something good to feel about, again, heading into this break. So I was completely fine with that. I, I also think you have to give him a lot of credit because – you know, he came out after games. You know, he talked to us during the week, not every single week, but he never really vented his frustration. You know, he, he never lost his cool. He always was a team player. 
and then after the game to come out and just definitively state that he's coming back. I just think that that speaks a lot about his character and about who he is. So this could not have been an easy year for him. I think he understood the expectations for him. Uh, Everybody had higher expectations for him. And and the way I'm trying to phrase that is I don't think anybody had higher expectations for Nick Singleton than Nick Singleton did. And for him to finish on a positive note, I think was, was just, you know, very good for him. And then, you know, I was able to do that little modified Brennan cam and, you know, sometimes you see these things and, and maybe you read too much into them, but you know, they've been juggling this running back position. They've been, they've been, you know, rotating starters. So I guess uh, Allen started the last couple, but then after the regular season finale, I'm back there in the tunnel because we couldn't get out on the field. And, and who do you see coming, coming off, together going back to the locker room but nick singleton and katron allen and you don't make that up they had no idea i was going to be there they had no idea media people were going to be there that wasn't phony that was two buddies you know who are competing for playing time going back and i think and uh, so we saw it in the game we saw it after the game but i agree with you tyler i think for nick singleton that game was just huge even though it was a blowout it was able. It, he was able to, to to see that. Yeah, it's still there. He still got it, and he played well, and he did good things. And uh, the the irony, obviously, that that it started with a pass play. And anybody who doesn't understand the value of Nick Singleton sitting in in team facilities in the film room on Saturday and watching himself break off those runs and watching himself do some of those things doesn't understand the power of confidence in athletics, yeah. and it's a real thing. And right now with Nick Singleton, you just look at the the, the, the regular season numbers here. We'll just review them really quickly because Katron Allen, he has 162 carries. That's five fewer than he had all of last season because, of course, you tack on the Rose Bowl to that. Uh, with those five fewer carries, he has 16 fewer yards than last year. His average uh, per rush is 5.3 this season versus 5.2 last year. He's got six touchdowns on the ground versus 10 touchdowns on the ground last year. But really kind of similar across the board there for Katron Allen. Uh, again, just 0.1 up in, in, in average. Um, he's right around the same carry total. So it's a very similar sample size year one over year two. And then you look at Nick Singleton. Um, he's at seven more carries right now on this season than he was as a freshman but he's at more than 300 fewer yards on the season. 6.8 last year. He's up to 4.3. He was actually under that four-yard average mark at one point here in, in, in late November. Big performance will do that for you. He's got eight touchdowns on the ground, but we will note he's doubled his receptions total from last season. He had 11 catches for 85 yards last fall. Here in 2023, 22 catches for 222 yards and a score as well. Uh, James Franklin has really made an emphasis to point to Nick Singleton's development as a receiver, as a blocker, as an all-around running back to kind of balance those scales a little bit and what we have not seen from the explosive plays, but they showed up in a big way on Friday night in Detroit. Uh, Moving along a bit, let's get over to Drew Aller um, because – Daniel, this is the guy that you have really, you know, kind of cast your fortunes to in, in some ways. Uh, it's a it's a five star prospect, the number one recruit in the country. All the talk this uh, this offseason was about the ability for him to help elevate that ceiling for Penn State. We know what happened to him and this offense when the lights got very bright. We know his quarterbacks coach and his offensive coordinator is no longer part of the equation as a result of those results. Here we are within a vacuum uh, here in, in December, looking at what Drew Aller can accomplish. Yeah, with a bowl game, with this prep, 
feels like a major launch pad moment. And to be able to come off of a matchup where you feel really good about yourself approaching almost 300 yards for the first time since a week one win against West Virginia, uh, looking healthy while doing it, getting Bo Perbula involved in a way that did not mess up the offensive rhythm. feels like Drew Aller has to be feeling good about several phases of this offensive attack and his role within it heading into a really important month. Definitely. I think that Penn State really put something together uh, on on Friday night. Um, who knows whether that's the, the game plan, just being more comfortable for Aller. There's so many moving parts with this offense over the past couple of weeks, but I just think getting that kind of performance from him to close the year uh, is something that just bodes well for the future. I mean, you look at what the last two weeks were like for him. Um, the Michigan game was another very, very rough outing for him. And then that Rutgers game, even before he left, uh, it was more the same, uh, at least statistically, from the Michigan game. So to have those two performances back-to-back where he just didn't quite look like how we thought he would, especially in the wake of that Maryland game where we thought they had things figured out, we thought they had hit on something with the offense and in order to make things work, uh, to see Aller come out against Michigan State and really put it together with all sorts of different kinds of throws. I mean, you had the throw to Nick Singleton where it was just get the ball out quick, get him in space, let the blockers do something, let Nick Singleton work. Then you had the play downfield to Omari Evans where it's it's air it out. Um, he had some of the intermediate throws to the tight ends. I mean, I, I think that they really were able – James Franklin talks all the time about using the whole field and having a quarterback who can use the whole field. And this seemed like the first time this year that Penn state was able, was really able to do that effectively and really at least tried to do that um, and, and be effective in that uh, with some of the, the deeper shots that you saw. So I think that to see that put in sort of a, a complete performance, um, I drew Aller is someone who is kind of hard to read for us. And if you talk to his teammates, um, he's a little bit difficult to read too, but in, in a positive way in terms of composure and, and things like that. But I would think that his confidence coming out um, of this game is, is very, very high. He's going to have another month of practices to kind of put things together. Obviously there's a big change coming with whoever the new offensive coordinator is, but I think that for Aller to have that type of performance on that kind of stage, I think that it kind of might remind people a little bit, especially nationally of the type of quarterback prospect that he was coming out of Medina in Ohio and the type of quarterback that we think he can be at the college level. Against Michigan State, Drew Aller, 17 of 26 passing at 65% completion, 292 yards, uh, those two touchdowns. And he had another bomb to Amari Evans, may have been his best throw of the day, uh, that fell just shy of a touchdown, could have been could have been in there as well. Uh, I wanted to note here, um, before we get over to some other, some other uh, aspects of this matchup, tight end appreciation. Uh, Penn State had a great tweet out, and I'll give them credit for, for digging up the, the stats and sharing them to us, and I'll regurgitate them here on the podcast. 15 total receiving touchdowns now. Uh, you had uh, Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren doing their thing again uh, on the road in Detroit. That is the fifth time this season that they've gotten multiple touchdowns out of the tight end position. And this blew my mind seeing the all-time tight ends leaderboard. There have some, been some very good ones that have come through Happy Valley. Number one remains Pat Fryermuth. He had 15 touchdowns in a Penn State jersey, despite missing a big chunk of that last season on campus. Mike Isicki, I should say, is tied for that mark with, with Pat Fryermuth. His injury that last year prevented him from becoming the sole possession of number one. But Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren 
are now tied for third on that list. Uh, went behind those two guys with 11 touchdowns. That's also tied with Brenton Strange. These guys have all played together. I mean, uh, Mike Kosicki's gone, but you had Pat Fryermuth who was followed to campus by Brenton Strange. You had Tyler Warren and Theo Johnson on campus with those guys at one point. Ty Howell has taken the baton uh, from, from Tyler Bowen and just kept moving forward. I mean, Mark, this is fascinating. This tweet should be uh, printed out and sent to every recruit across the country at the tight end position that they're interested in. I don't know if mail still gets sent to, uh, to prospects. Just text them <laughs> the graphic or whatever they do these days. But, man, it has been really fascinating to watch the tight end position. doesn't really matter who the assistant coach has been of late. It has been flourishing, and we wondered going down to the, the, the stretch of this season, uh, you know, if, if Tyler Warren, if, if, if uh, Theo Johnson will be impacted by the offense's kind of uh, lack of consistency. But these guys have been the consistency, I feel like, along with Katron Allen. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I think the tight end position is used a little differently now than it may have been when the, when the Kyle Brady's, you know, were playing. But that that's there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I think the, the the amount of twelve personnel they used, they did that for a reason because they weren't getting the consistency out of their wide receiver core, and that these guys were so damn productive. I mean, it's been it, it's been unbelievable. But the thing that if you talk to them, uh, you know, a guy like Ty Howe about what they're looking for, or James Franklin, how many times has James Franklin said it that, that they are very picky. They are very selective in who they're going after as tight ends. You know, they don't want guys who are just, you know, glorified receivers. Or if they are, like a guy like Mike Kosicki, who was that in high school, and I think he was the first person to admit it, they want to make sure that they're going to be willing to at least put in the effort to learn to be a blocker. But if you're coming to Penn State, you are, you're you're not going to be able to just go out there and be a pass catcher. You are going to have to be involved in blocking. And, you know, they're going to use you as an H-back. They're going to put you all over the place. And I think for these guys to embrace that, you know, you lose a guy like Brenton Strange and the position actually got better from a from an overall receiving standpoint. From a blocking standpoint, I think some people may may argue that it wasn't quite as good as it was with Brenton Strange, but I think that just says how good that that position has been. And I, I think you hit on it too. I mean, Ty Howell to come in and do what he did after Tyler Bowen did such a real such a good job. Yeah, you know, this guy, he's the son of a coach. Um, I don't know what his future holds. I, I think it, it would be difficult to, 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 to get somebody that doesn't have the experience and name him your OC. Uh, but he's doing a great job along with Jay Wan Sider at this point. But that guy is going places as a coach. You know, he's still young, 32 or 33. So he's got a long way to go. But somewhere down the line, he's going to be an OC sooner or later. And somewhere down the line, that guy is going to be a head coach. And I, I think you can look at that production – you could look at the, those numbers and attribute it a lot to the to the players, significantly to the players. But I also think you have to attribute it to the way that they're coaching these kids up. We saw five tight ends involved, by the way. Uh, Khalil Dinkins was out there. I believe, Daniel, you noted during the game his first non-fourth down catch of the season. He's a guy that's waiting in the wings, you could say, now as a redshirt sophomore. Jerry Cross, the redshirt freshman, and the true freshman, Andrew Rapier, were both out there for a couple of snaps as that one got out of hand. And by the way, the nation's number one tight end prospect and Liam uh, and, and Luke Reynolds, I should say, coming to campus here in a matter of about six weeks. So that room's going to get even better. Although we may have to note, could be some serious departures as Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren weigh their decisions. 
quick note on Drew Aller that I wanted to say during that particular segment. We were uh, working our way through some pro football focus numbers uh, earlier today on Tuesday, getting ready for our snap counts piece at Lions 24-7. And, and something stood out about their grading. Drew Aller was back on top for offensive grading from, from PFF uh, in this particular case after the Michigan State matchup. And he was within the top three of their offensive player grades for eight of the first nine games. As you might imagine, games 10, games 11, when this team didn't pass for 100 yards and Drew Aller was hurt, he did not make that top three list on those occasions. But you're looking at nine times in 12 matchups where he's a top three performer. Several of them, he was your number one guy. I went back and looked at, at Sean Clifford was very, uh, very consistent last year, more than he had been for much of his career. It was the best overall season of his career. But he had earned a he had earned a grade of thir- of 80 plus on three times in 13 games, including the Rose Bowl. And we have seen now Drew Aller do that in six games, 80 plus. So just something that that stood out to me as we kind of work our way through what the season looked like him, the overall body of work. And I know James Franklin was trying to hammer it home as best he could, that if you were told you're getting a quarterback who's throwing for 23, 24 touchdowns and one interception as a first year starter, any coach in America is going to take that and run. Now, stylistically, we saw what that looked like when the bright lights came on. And we know that it ultimately contributed toward the costing uh, the offensive coordinator his job. Um, so how much does that do with the offensive coordinator who was calling plays? How much does that have to do with the quarterback who was out there against those stellar defenses in Michigan and Ohio State? Well, Drew Aller will get a chance to maybe reshape that narrative a little bit with a potential top 10 matchup in the bowl game and certainly moving forward as a junior. But just a quick note there, um, his past targets have looked a little bit different, Daniel. I mean, that's one area of the personnel plan, I think, on offense that has stood out to me since Mike Yersich has been removed from the from the setting has been Omari Evans all of a sudden getting a ton of run. Uh, Malik Mega and and Malik McLean showing up early in the first quarter of games. Caden uh, Saunders. I mean, I know we saw some of these guys in different spots, but there is a concerted effort to get them involved on second, third series of games the last couple of weeks. And this is the area where come come uh, early December, the transfer portal's heating up. Everyone wants to know who Penn State's going to add at this position. We're also wondering who may leave the room at this position. But we've got some indications that something new is maybe brewing at the receiver room under Marcus Higgins with some new offensive coordinator leadership. Yeah, I, I think you go back to those, those games in, in mid-October where you saw that rotation really, really get tightened up. I think the UMass game was was the first example of, um, you know, you really saw the, the reps concentrated with guys. And that was going into that um, Ohio State game. And then the the Rutgers game, your first game out. I mean, it's the, the third or fourth series of the game. And you've already seen, I think, seven different wide receivers out there. And that really continued um, in, into Friday night against Michigan State. And I, I think that that goes back to what James Franklin was talking about in terms of, needing to figure out what these guys do well and catering to that instead of focusing on what they can't do and sidelining them because of that. So, and I think that you look at Omari Evans and, and he's the the biggest beneficiary of that. Um, you know, he, he's got that four, three speed. He can go. Um, I think one, I was thinking about this after our podcast on, on Friday night. Um, Cause we, we talked about him for a while, but I think the one thing that's overlooked with him because he did burn his red shirt last year is that he's still really new to this position. Um, and I remember Taylor Stubblefield talking about how um, he was almost easier to coach because there weren't habits to break that it was 
you know, kind of you're molding starting from scratch, basically, with someone who had great athleticism. Um, but progress isn't linear. I mean, the the infinite growth curve doesn't go on forever. Um, you know, you have setbacks here and there, especially for someone who is also trying to learn this position at, at such a high level. So I think that that was something, too, that I definitely overlooked over the course of the year that, you know, this is this guy's second year of playing this position full time. Um, he's doing it in the Big Ten. He was able to adjust really well as a freshman, um, then has a little bit of that adversity for you know, whatever reason this year. Um, but I, I think for Penn State to get him on the field, to, for him to be able to show what he can do, uh, we know that he and Drew Aller had a good rapport from what we saw last year. Um, I think it just brought a, a different element um, to Penn State. And I, I think that that's kind of what you want to see out of your wide receivers. I think that you know, there's the case where you get almost too specialized and are only playing guys in certain situations and it can make your offense a little bit predictable sometimes or, or have some tells, but I do like the idea of getting guys in, in certain situations, um, especially during a stretch when you're not getting much from Keandre Lambert Smith and you're not getting, you know, too, too much from Dante Cephas, even though he closed the field or closed the season nicely. I think getting more guys on the field that have different skill sets, um, can be used in different situations. I think that that can only really strengthen uh, your group. I mean, that group is going to be really interesting to watch this offseason. Um, the wide receivers coach that recruited a, most of these guys here is gone. Um, so that's something that, that can always cause some changes. Um, but I do think that moving forward, uh, that that's, this is kind of the approach that I think Penn State should take um, this room could look completely different, but I think by showing that you're willing to put guys in, in different situations and be flexible, I, I think that's only a good thing for this offense. And you're giving guys an opportunity to create something with Drew Aller, you know, something beyond the practice field. It's, it's great that we heard so much in August and spring ball about how they were all getting on the same page and Drew Aller was kind of rallying guys to, to get together outside of team facilities and throwing the football but, you know, those efforts can only go so far. And, and and so to see them start to click a little bit here in game action, just a small sample size thus far. But in the case of Omari Evans, he he popped up with some significant roles late September. He had 40 snaps against Iowa. He had 30 snaps against Northwestern late September. I believe in those two games combined, he saw one target, did not catch a pass. He gets tucked away. He, he gets buried on the depth chart after that. We saw him for 10 snaps against UMass coming out of the bye week. You'd think that'd be a chance for him. He had 25 total snaps uh, on offense between game six and games 10. The last two matchups of the regular season, he goes almost 60 combined snaps. And we're seeing it pay off with a 25, I think a 22-yard gain, 25-yard gain against the uh, Rutgers, and then a 60-yard gain on the road against, uh, against uh, Michigan State in Detroit. And you just wonder – Amari Evans, you don't need to see him fill with five catches, 125 yards, but those are the kind of spark plays, a 22-yard game or 25-yard game, whatever it was against Rutgers, a big one against Michigan State that have been sorely lacking from this offensive attack. And one other thing to note, Dante Cephas started his, uh, I believe, third consecutive game now uh, with Harrison Wallace sideline. That may be four. I may have counted that one wrong, but uh, active, more active than we've seen him in, in any game except the, the Maryland matchup when he caught two touchdowns. He had three catches for 36 yards on four targets. So he's been getting some run here. We'll see what that's going to mean for him as he's a guy who can come back next year, get a second year at Penn state, use some bull prep. 
Interestingly, Keandre Lambert-Smith, just two catches for 28 yards in the last three games combined. Um, we'll see what uh, maybe his role gets recalibrated a little bit here. Maybe he gets showcased a bit more in a bowl matchup, but a guy that probably could use some some late season film here to, to put out there uh, after kind of disappearing a little bit from the stat sheet late. And then Harrison Wallace. Just want to note that that we have not heard anything on James Franklin definitive, but I think all of our expectations have been if he's coming back, it's going to be for December. It's going to be for some late bowl prep and then maybe get him back involved in the bowl game. Remember last year, Caden Wallace missed the last five games of the regular season at right tackle. He got back involved in December legitimately and really got back on the field for the Rose Bowl as their backup right tackle behind Bryce Efner. But he talked about that meaning a lot to him moving into 2023. Maybe Harrison Wallace can find something here down the stretch if he's able to be healthy enough to go. Um, guys, from an injury perspective, while we're on that subject, uh, a couple other notes there. Uh, Amin Vanover at defensive end left the matchup against Michigan State. Uh, he something to monitor. He's missed significant game time this year. A couple absences early, not explained. And then a few after the, the Ohio State matchup after his early exit in Columbus. And then we did not see J.B. Nelson get back after a first quarter injury at left guard. That meant a lot of work for Venga Ioane, who I thought handled himself extremely well and continues to look like he's going to be a mainstay of this offensive line in 2024. He actually led all offensive linemen in snaps against Michigan State. A few things to note there on the injury front. I thought Drew Shelton working him in at, at both tackle spots the last couple of weeks was good for them from a depth perspective. And then freshman notes here, Javen Williams, Anthony Donka got some run. Uh, we saw Andrew Rappelier get in uh, on, at tight end. Have not seen much from any offensive players in that freshman class. None of them burned their red shirt this season. That was games three for the three guys I just mentioned. Mark, defensive dominance. It has been the storyline. Uh, we, we addressed a lot of other topics here. I want to close out on Michigan State with this. Um, it was a complete elite season for this defense. Even when you look at those two losses, national reporters, local reporters, the narrative around those is always going to be that defense played well enough on those afternoons to knock off Michigan, to knock off Ohio State. It didn't happen. Ultimately going to contribute to why Manny Diaz is not on that Broyles Award finalist list, which was narrowed down to five yesterday. But our guy Greg Kincaid, SID for Penn State, uh, I don't think the timing was coincidental here. He put out some some numbers on this Penn State defense uh, shortly after that Broyles finalist list was announced without Diaz. Uh, this Penn State defense on the season, number one in total defense uh, with the highest marks since the 2011 Alabama squad. And this is all based on regular season results here. Number one in the nation in sacks, back-to-back -back years being number one in the Big Ten in sacks. Uh, second in pass defense nationally, third in tackles for loss, first among Power Five programs, uh, third in scoring defense nationally, third in run defense nationally. And of course, that was a big question that we kind of had if that could take a step forward this year. And they posted three different shutouts, including two in Big Ten action. And they are one of only two schools since 2000 to hold multiple opponents under uh, at 276 yards or lower in a game. They did that against Michigan State and they did that against Iowa in conference play. So, Mark, a lot of numbers. They're very pretty for Manny Diaz. He's going to have some options on the table. How would you kind of put the punctuation mark on what you saw from this defense from 2023 going back to September 2nd all the way through Black Friday? Yeah, I think the tough part is it, it's almost unfairly judged by those Michigan and Ohio State games because I think the defense played well enough for Penn State to win both of those games if the offense had just done its part. And, and again, I'm not saying it was dominating. I'm not saying it shut people down. But when you hold those teams to the number of points that they scored, you would think that you would have a better opportunity to win those games. So, so to me, 
you know, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess you could have really, you know, shut those teams down completely. You know, I, I don't know that anybody's really going to do that. Uh, but I almost think it's unfairly judged. And, you know, we've mentioned it before here on the podcast, and I kind of asked James Franklin about it after the game, that, you know, I don't think it's going to really manifest itself in a ton of awards for these guys, unfortunately. I mean, I think Adisa Isaac, and um, you know, as we're recording this, I think the defensive award, awards come out tomorrow, right? This is two, it's today at one. Oh, it's today. So I apologize if, if, if you're seeing this after the fact. But my guess is, the, the number of uh, all Big Ten awards they receive aren't going to be in line with what they probably deserve for how dominant that this defense was. I think Adisa Isaac, you know, for him to cap the season the way he did, coming back from a significant injury a couple years ago, deciding to play this year, I think he kind of personified the, the whole, uh, listen, you lose two games, very difficult losses, but you know what? He strapped up his, his helmet and, and went in there and just, you know, kicked some rear end in his last couple games and no more so than, 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 against, uh, than, than against Michigan State. So I just think as dominant a defensive effort as I've seen from Penn State since maybe, you know, that 86 team, and I know that's, you know, putting this in rarefied territory, and I think if you go back, the 2014 was actually ridiculously good defensively, even though the numbers weren't great. 99 was really good, but fell apart at the end. But I, I just think what this group did week in and week out, it put it put Penn State in position to win every single game. And that's all you could ask for. And I put those losses to Ohio State. Manny Diaz wouldn't say that. The guys on the defense wouldn't say that. But I can say it. I think the defense played well enough to win both of those games. And I think if they had gotten enough of a shot in the arm, the special teams as well from the offense, they would have. There were really four defensive coordinators in the Big Ten that, that were under consideration for this. And, and when you look at the rankings nationally, there's four Big Ten teams that have been present near the top of that throughout Michigan, Ohio State, Iowa, Penn State, really all through the season. Phil Parker from Iowa is the one who makes the cut out of that group for the finalists. And I think you got to factor in that uh, he was working with about an offensive ceiling of 14, 15 points per game and having to juggle that. So you can understand the, the, the other part of the uh, uh, the conversation or the argument is who are you taking off the list to put Manny Diaz on there? And, and that's obviously a tougher conversation than just saying Manny Diaz does belong there. But he certainly did belong. Uh, they, and and I'm not going to I'm not going to say that someone else needs to be removed. But Manny Diaz is going to be OK despite his lack of, of being on that list. And I think Penn, really didn't Penn State score 30 points against Iowa? I mean, if I recall correctly, yeah. And they yeah, how many did Iowa score against long, so I would take that guy drive. off. Seriously, I would take I would take him off simply because their their whole philosophy is to muck the game up and slow the thing down as much as humanly possible on offense. And so so I just I actually think that makes it easier defensively in some respects but we could argue about it it doesn't matter I think at the end of the day the players have actually said it that if you take care of business where it really matters with pro scouts looking at you they know what the hell they're looking at the, the pro scouts are not looking at the all big 10 list you know what I mean they don't care about that they're looking at the tape they say see who's doing what on tape and we've seen that if you play well uh defensively at Penn State even if you don't have great stats and then you test well to combine, things are going to work out just fine. 
Mark, just put a cherry on the top of your point. Um, Penn State came out of the second, uh, came out of halftime against Iowa and did this with their next three possessions: fifteen yards, seven, uh, fifteen plays, seventy-five yards in almost seven minutes for a touchdown; twelve plays, seventy-one yards in almost six minutes for a touchdown, and then they followed up with the short touchdown drive. Um, so uh, you make a very good point there, and, and the numbers may back that up. There's no doubt about that. And Daniel, just individually, Manny Diaz is obviously going to be in the national spotlight right now, and because of, of his name being a hot commodity, maybe moving forward. But individually, he mentioned Adiza Isaac, and and we can point to Chop Robinson. I think the safeties have really stepped up during the final stretch of this season as they've gotten their uh, extended run as the starters. And Jalen Reed and KJ Winston, both of them flashed again in Detroit. Curious, just who is really ascending? It might be the guys I just mentioned. Who do you just see really crashing into December uh, with with a ball of momentum behind them? I think it's got to be Reed and Winston. Um, I, I think that those two guys, these past couple of weeks, have played really, really well. Um, I think that they asserted themselves at that position. <clears throat> um, you think back to last year, and I know that Jair Brown really didn't leave the field too, too often last year, but they were still playing four safeties. They were still playing Keaton Ellis, Reed, and Zachy Wheatley back there. And you look at this year, and it's been pretty much exclusively Winston and Reed, uh, especially during meaningful action. And I think that we saw Reed get that interception um, against Michigan State in his hometown. Uh, we, we've seen Winston come up with a couple big plays here and there. Um, I think that those two guys have played really, really well these past couple of weeks, um, and that you know, they can use this bowl prep. They can have kind of a coming out party uh, in, in the bowl game. And then Abdul Carter, uh, I think that we've seen him these past couple of weeks kind of return to that level that we saw him close last year at and that I think we thought we were going to see him at this entire season. Um, he left the game uh, against Detroit, didn't come back, but that seems pretty precautionary with how the game was uh, at, at that point. Um, he, he was made available to us post-game uh, briefly, so nothing, I guess, too too wrong there. But I, I think that seeing how he's played these past couple of weeks, he's played fast, he's played violent. I think that that's someone that we could see with a couple more weeks of prep um, show up uh, in the bowl game. But one note on Manny Diaz, I mean, you, you think about the, the season that he had, and I mean, your worst game is giving up 24 points to Indiana, that has two fluky, just blown coverages. Um, you know, you give up 24 to, to Michigan, 20 to Ohio State. I mean, it was just a, a very, very impressive season. And you know, normally I don't get too wrapped up in some of these uh, award stuff because there's really no objective way to do it because people that are voting, like you can't see everything. Um, and then we've seen it with PFF, the things that are supposed to be objective. Um they can be a little, a little misleading at times too. Um, but I think that when I didn't see him on the, the Broyles uh, semifinal or finalist, I was, I was really surprised by that because I just think that, you know, this Penn state defense has been really, really dominant. It's been fun to watch. It's been playmaking and I, it's been hard to come out of any game this year outside of probably Indiana um, and be like, there's something wrong here. They need to work on this. I mean, it's been, pretty flawless, I think, from from start to finish. And they've done it while going very deep down the depth chart in ways that other defensive coordinators just wouldn't dare trust their personnel in that same way, shape, and form. You had both of your defensive tackles, by the way, starters, and this is just very kind of uh, – this is em amplifies what we have seen, I think, all, all throughout the season. You had Devon Ellis, 
and uh, Zane Durant under 15 total snaps against Michigan State. They just haven't needed him. They've known when to get guys to the sideline, and they've gone deep each week and just pushing the right buttons all season long, circling back to Abdul Carter very quickly, three and a half sacks in the month of November after having one sack through the first two months of the season. We were wondering where that uh, those splash plays, the explosive moments in opposing backfields were. They've been showing up now with some consistency of late, and that's something to build off, especially if you're going to lose some big sack artists off of this defense into in the offseason to have Abdul Carter reasserting himself like I can get after the quarterback. He had six and a half sacks last season as a freshman. Um, I think as we move ahead, I, I just wanted to point out the offensive sack numbers are pretty good too. I mentioned that the defense led led the country, or I'm sorry, led the country and also led the Big Ten in two consecutive years in the conference in sacks. 91 total sacks for this defense under Manny Diaz's direction the last couple of seasons. No one else even has 75 sacks in the Big Ten during that same span. It has been that far and away impressive by Penn State. But when you look at the offensive numbers for sack totals, recall how poor the rushing attack was in 2021 in Mike Yersich's first year as offensive coordinator. But I'll remind you how bad the pass protection was as well. 34 sacks surrendered in 13 games in 2021. That was number 97 across college football. That was dead last in the Big Ten. Last year, they took a step forward, 21 sacks allowed in 13 games. That was number six in the Big Ten. That was number 40 nationally. They finished this regular season with only 15 sacks allowed in 12 games. we got another game to see them play. Uh, but as of their final regular season game, that was 20th nationally. Uh, and, and that was uh, number three in the Big Ten. And that was behind two teams that passed the ball 70 less times than Penn State during the season in Rutgers and Michigan. Both of them finished with 13 sacks allowed. So we mentioned a lot from Manny Diaz, the progression there. Um, but I got to say, Phil Troutwine, if you're looking for signs of improvement, look at the way this Penn State team has been able to protect their quarterback. A first-year starter, I think Drew Aller, did a pretty damn good job as a first-year starter of av avoiding some sacks and knowing when to throw the ball away. So that helps those numbers. But uh, really pretty stuff when you, when you paint that picture for sack numbers on both sides of the football right now uh, for Penn State. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
bowl game. We're waiting for it. We're going to be there. We just don't know which city it's going to be in, if it's going to be a place that's guaranteed heat or if it's a place that's going to put us at risk of you know 50-degree weather over the course of bowl week. We just don't know. Mark, you have been doing this a long time. You've played this waiting game uh, between the regular season and the announcements, which will come next Sunday after the conference championship games have been determined. New Year's Six Bowl seems like a lock. Uh, the latest projection from 24-7 Sports' Brad Crawford send this team to the Cotton Bowl where they were just a few years ago, um, taking on Missouri out of the SEC. We've seen them taking on Tulane. We've seen projections with Alabama. What do you think ultimately is the best case scenario for Penn State? It feels like the destination maybe isn't that important here because you are in the New Year Six. Yep. But the opponent, the opponent may have a pretty big role here. Yeah, I don't care who they play or I don't care where they play. Well, I do because, you know, I'll, I'll be going there. But in terms of what would be best for Penn State? It doesn't matter where they play, so long as they get into a New Year Six, which I think is going to happen. But it's going to be who they play. You know, I, I don't think you want to end up matched up with another Tulane, you know, Memphis type type of team. With all due respect to them, for what this game would mean to this team after dropping the two biggest games on the schedule. I think to have another opportunity at a top 10 opponent, uh, it would be just something that this, I think it's something this team really needs to, to go out. I think that would be the motivation, not from necessarily everybody to come back and play, but for as many guys as possible, you know, maybe a Rose Bowl scenario, like, you know, last year where you lose one or two guys, but I just think, you know, it, to, to get a Missouri, to get an Alabama, I think those are that that's what you want to do. And and from my perspective, ideally, I think it would be just tremendous if they could face Alabama because that's another one of those standard bearer programs that you weren't able to do it this year against Ohio State and Michigan. You weren't able to do it last year, but get that program and see what you could do against them. Win, lose, or whatever, you're going up against a measuring stick program. And it's super important in terms of where they play. I just, to me, it would be really cool to go to the peach bowl since I've never been there. And I don't think Penn state's ever been there as well. So to kind of add that to the resume, and I think goon pointed this out, Penn state could become the first team to win all of the major bowl games, which, uh, which would be something pretty cool. I think there's six of them. So to have that opportunity, I think would be good. But if you're in one of those new year six games, we've been to them. And they're all just complete class acts and great places to go. And, you know, it, it, it's not that downtown Atlanta is a great place to go, but the stadium's fantastic from everything I hear. And it's just, it's a first class operation. So to get back to this level is cool. But again, to me, where not so important, who very important. Daniel, the group of five, uh, the, the top team out of the group of five gets this spot. And we saw Memphis get that a few years ago and take on Penn State without their head coach. And it was a very competitive game down to the wire in the Cotton Bowl. But I think the prevailing conversation that week was that Penn State certainly has more to lose than maybe gain in this matchup. Because if you lose against a group of five team, is that little maybe people put fairly on or unfairly against that group of five team going to view a little egg on your face? Whereas if you take care of business and beat them, people are going to say, well, you're supposed to do that. You take on a one-loss team out of the SEC or, or uh, I mean, I, Texas is out there. There's a lot of teams out there that they carry a lot of cachet right now. And I think it's important to note that 
there's a risk reward to this because we saw Penn State, they offensively get embarrassed on a big stage and they're going to have a different coaching philosophy. They're going to have different minds involved there on game day. Um, so it is definitely an opportunity. You know, if you see this team fall flat again for a third time against a very high caliber opponent, that's going to make it worse taste in your mouth. But for a shot at redemption, to Mark's point, um, could be very valuable for this program for its trajectory. What do you make of if it is an Alabama or if it is one of those, uh, you know, SEC also runs another Missouri? What do you think about what Penn State could gain versus what they could lose from a matchup like that? Man, disrespect the defending Cotton Bowl champion Green Wave uh, at, at your own risk, Mark. Um, but no, I mean, I, I I agree with with some of that. I mean, I think that you're definitely weighing a lot here. Um, I mean, I think for me, when I look at the potential matchups, I mean, I, I do think that if Penn State gets a shot at one of these power, another power five team, uh, I, I think that that would be really, really big for them, especially to do it on a national stage, because, you know, the last time that a lot of people who will tune in for whatever bowl game it is, I mean, maybe the only times they watched Penn State this year were against Ohio State and Michigan, or maybe they saw the West Virginia and the uh, Michigan State games, but they remember the Ohio State uh, and, and Michigan games more. So I, I think that it would be big for Penn State to get an SEC team or a, a Big 12 team or, or something along those lines uh, to really be able to, to prove themselves. And I, I think that there's also some kind of an intriguing matchups that you can kind of, you know, begin to to play with in your head. I mean, you do have to factor in opt-outs and, and whatnot, but that Missouri offense has been really fun to watch this year. You know, Luther Burden is an elite wide receiver. Theo Weiss is really good. What's that going to look like against uh, the the Penn State defense, the Penn State secondary? We know what like Texas is. What's that look like against Penn State? We, we've seen Alabama do some great things this year. So I think that maybe it's a little bit easier to um, you know get excited for that kind of matchup. I do think that Tulane would be a, a challenge. I mean, that they've been the class of the American. They beat USC last year. They've kind of, it's one of those things where it's going to be a group of five team that's been there before. Um, but I, I think in terms of the risk reward, I mean, I think that if you're Penn State, if you're wired how James Franklin is wired, if you're wired how a lot of these players are wired, I mean, when you think about it, the offense was the area of the ball that had the most issues against Michigan and Ohio State. And that's where a lot of these young players are. A lot of those players are going, going to be back next year. So this is a chance for them to, to prove themselves again on the national stage. And you know, if you're them, if you're James Franklin, you want the most challenging um, you know, opponent possible to prove yourself, show what you're all about. We'll just finish this uh, commentary on the bowl game by noting that the teams that you witnessed the last weekend and that you'll see this weekend may not be the same teams that take the field for a bowl game. The Penn State's not the only program that's going to be monitoring opt-out situations. And when we're talking about some of these one-loss squads that still feel like they can get to the college football this weekend, punch their ticket, what might that letdown feeling and what might December feel like for them if they're on the outside looking in? We've seen motivation questions pop up with some programs that have been left on the doorstep of the of the college football playoff at times. Um, just some things to weigh there as Penn State prepares. Again, come next week, we'll be breaking down a real matchup. We'll do our best to get an opposing reporter on very quickly to talk about what that opponent is going to look like for Penn State. But for now, just a little bit of a conversation speculating on what this might mean 
for Penn State. Guys, appreciate the perspective. We're going to get over Tyler Calvaruso, the transfer portal, recruiting trail, always happening. Um, so uh, you get into basketball. I promise we're going to make some time. We're going to clear our schedules, I think, later in this week to spend some minutes. If not later this week, early next week, I promise. We'll talk some basketball. It's not really the best time. Three-game losing streak down in Florida. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll, you, we'll, you go find out what Mike Rose has to say at the BJC, and then you'll have uh, full reporting at Lions247.com coming out of that. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. As reference, we've got Tyler Calvaruso joining us right now following Daniel and Mark. And Tyler, uh, you heard it right there. We're still kind of breaking down the regular season and the transition over to the postseason and what that means for this Penn State roster. And naturally, that's going to collide with the transfer portal very soon. Uh, you and I are going to discuss some positions that we anticipate to be priorities momentarily. But I want to begin with one of those remaining names that have been out there floated around in the 2024 recruiting class, one that we discussed a bit not too long ago here on the podcast, top 24-7 offensive lineman Andrew Dennis, a former Michigan State commit, made a trip to the Happy Valley this season for an official visit. There were crystal balls placed in that direction for the Nittany Lions. Things have changed. Bring us up to speed, maybe what it means for Penn State's 2024 class moving ahead. Yeah, I almost placed one in favor of Penn State leading up to Thanksgiving, but I was told by a source familiar with Dennis's recruitment to keep an eye on his upcoming Illinois official visit. And admittedly, at first, I was kind of skeptical about that. I know Illinois had been a constant in Dennis's recruitment pretty much from the start. You know, they were the first Power Five program to offer going way back to, I believe it was the fall of 2022, the Illini offered. So that had a longstanding relationship in place. But I wasn't quite sure if Illinois was still going to be able to overtake Penn State and Clemson. The most of the buzz was surrounding those two programs. He gets to Champaign, takes that official visit. Things go so well. He's now committed to Illinois. So that is a target off the board for Penn State in the 2024 class. Not many names left on that 2024 board. You know, Dennis is one of those guys who's receiving the majority of the attention, especially on the offensive side of the ball at this point in the cycle. Really, it's just one of those things where you kind of throw your hands up and say, hey, it is what it is. You know, if Illinois is going to come in and be the Penn State for recruit, you just got tipped to the hat to the staff out there. They did a good job recruiting him. Penn State did a good job recruiting Dennis as well. I mean, when Penn State offered in September, Phil Trotwin got to work on building a good relationship with Dennis, and it got to a point where it looked like Penn State was going to get that one done. Illinois winds up winning in the end. That's the nature of the trail sometimes, but that is a notable name off the board. And then there's a 2024 class isn't lacking for numbers on the offensive line, as we've discussed in the past. They've got a bunch of those guys already on board. Um, my question, I guess, is do do you still, still see this as a plus one positional unit moving forward? Or was Andrew Dennis kind of a, a unique case where he's a guy that they wanted to add him? It, 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 is, is this maybe closing up shop on the 2024 offensive line class? Or does this create a, a need to discover a new path toward adding yet another lineman? This could be it. I mean, there was contact with – there's been contact with Kevin Haywood, the top 24-7 in-state tackle who's committed to Wisconsin, but I don't think that's going to happen for Penn State. I think he's pretty solid with the Badgers at this point in time. And then, I mean, you always have the potential for late risers. I mean, look what happened with Chimdi Ono last cycle where he burst onto the scene really in December, just before the beginning of the early signing period. He winds up signing with Penn State in February and winds up being a top 24-7 prospect. When it's all said and done, I think the more likely outcome is, you know, Penn State explores the offensive line in the portal. You know, I think that now that Dennis is off the board and Haywood doesn't necessarily profile as likely 
maybe a late riser is less likely given the fact that there are going to be some quality names in the portal. And there already are some quality names in the portal or at least expected to enter the portal. Um, so Cooper Cousins, Garrett Sexton, Donovan Harbor, Egan Boyer, Caleb Brewer, that's your five-man uh, offensive line class right now. They're tacking on a, another big offensive line class to what they added last year after a couple smaller offensive line classes, and you lost some guys for different reasons, so you have to fill some numbers there. But as you said, and we'll get to in a second, the transfer portal always looming for potential uh, you know, Band-Aids or, or, or a little bit more of a short-term fixes than what you'll get out of the high school level. Um, when we talk about the 2024 or 2025 recruiting class, um, there is a new rankings out for 2024 from 24 seven sports top 24 seven break down before we get to some of the targets in their standing where the commits landed. This is the number six class in the nation with six commits on board for 2025 for Penn state. Uh, what stood out to you about where some of these commits ended up in our top 24 seven, which came out last week with an update. So Penn state has two 2025 commits in that top 24 seven right now. DJ McClary, the linebacker from New Jersey and Brady O'Hara, the jumbo athlete from uh, Pittsburgh North Catholic, Keandre Barker, the running back who was previously a top 24-7 prospect. He wound up bowing out of the rankings for now. Regarding McClary and O'Hara, both of those guys dropped, but a lot of that had to do with a lot of fresh evaluations and a lot of new names in this set of 20, top 24-7 rankings. I mean, DJ McClary dropped 16 spots, and his rating actually went up from 90 to 91. Brady O'Hara's rating remains at 90. He, he took a little bit of a tumble, nothing crazy, but I, I think it's a product more of guys, you know, moving up the rankings and guys entering the rankings than anything to do with Penn State's commit. But you've got two in the top 24-7 right now, a bunch of targets in this new top 24-7. I would say it was probably a more productive, uh, productive rankings update for the targets than it was the commits. Let's go there then, because uh, we got a lot of looks on these guys last summer, and some of them have been on the rise, and we kind of anticipated that. Go through some of those notable risers in the top 24-7 rankings, guys that Penn State has offered for a while, and now everyone's really starting to take notice, and, and it's going to be a bit of a fight. Yeah, Kalik Lockett, he's the number 12 recruit in the nation in our updated top 24-7 as a wide receiver from Texas. So Penn State has been maybe, I, I call it quietly moving up his list. Really, he got to campus to camp for the staff during the summer. That was a visit that went really, really well. He enjoyed working with Marcus Higgins that day. He's been high on the Nittany Lions since, and the staff has been high on him. So there's a lot of mutual interest there. Penn State's looking to get him back to campus. Kenoa Winston, I mean, the cousin of KJ Winston, he is now the number 27 recruit in the 2025 class and he has Penn State high on his list and I start with those two because you got to keep in mind with what we do our rankings here guys might not have fifth stars right now but that one through 32 range is five star territory so those are two guys who you know if the cycle was to wrap up right now they would be five star prospects so that speaks to the level of prospect those two are Penn State's high on both I think both hold a pretty solid place they hold the Nittany Lions in high regard right now so that's encouraging I mean, you got a bunch of in-state movement as well. You know, Matt Zollers, the spring four quarterback, he's up into the 140s. I mean, Lex Cyrus, he breaks into the rankings at 200. Those guys, they're interesting for obviously them being in-state prospects. They're interesting for another reason as well. Both guys who camped at Penn State during the summer and received ample attention from the staff while they were there. You know, that was something that we got to see with our own eyes. I mean, Zollers had the attention of the staff every time he threw the ball. Lex Cyrus was getting pulled off to the side by Marcus Higgins on multiple occasions during drill work for, you know, some individual work and some advice. And Cyrus was very receptive 
to that. So those two guys stand out to me. Regionally, a lot of movement. You know, I already touched on Winston. Ari Wadford's a top target on the edge. He's the number 20 recruit in the 2025 class right now. Another guy who's in five-star territory. Not in the region is Amari Williams, Florida, edge rusher. We've got him listed as an athlete. Another guy who's in five-star territory at number 30. Trey McNutt, D-back from Ohio. He's number 33. Terry Smith likes him. Lincoln Cure, the tight end from Kansas, he's he's been a really, really significant riser. When he visited Penn State for the whiteout in September, he was still just a three-star recruit. And a little bit after that, he breaks into the top 24-7 at 24-7. Now he's a number 38 recruit in the nation. He's high on that Penn State tight end board. Ty Howell's in a position where he can take some big swings nationally. Cure might be the guy in that regard when it's all said and done. Quincy Porter, the Bergen Catholic wideout that Penn State loves. He's the number 50 recruit in the nation. Jalen Gilchrist, the offensive lineman from Virginia Beach. He's number 63 in the nation. Zaheer Mathis, you know, Penn State didn't make his top five. And, you know, that one doesn't profile as likely for the Nittany Lions right now. But they're still fighting that fight. He's number 79. Max Roy, the interior defensive lineman from Philly, plays at St. Joe's Prep. Been to Penn State more than anywhere else in his recruitment. He's still getting going. With this process, you know, he still hasn't made a ton of visits. But Penn State has gotten him on campus more than anyone else to start, so that's notable. He's number 99 in the nation. Then you got, just to run through some quick names, outside of the top 100, and there are a bunch of them. Tight end Nate Roberts from Oklahoma, he's 102. Bo Jackson, the running back from Ohio, who visited for the Rutgers game, he's 103. Tariq Hayer, who was on campus for the Michigan game, corner from St. John's College in D.C., he's 125. Jeff Exner from McDonough School in Maryland, where Penn State has had plenty of success in the past, 138. Mike Thomas III from Donovan Catholic down in Jersey, South Jersey, wide receiver. He's 139. Trent Wilson, who is very, very high on Penn State at this point in this process, the defensive lineman from Maryland, formerly at St. Francis Academy, now he's at Wise. He's 151. Cam Smith, the Jersey native, was at St. Joe's Prep with Max Roy and Anthony Saka. He's 153. Jadon Blair, the safety from North Carolina, who has already told me that he's going to take an official visit to Penn State when that time comes. He's 179. Jameer Joseph, North Jersey cornerback, who's been to Penn State a couple of times. He's 201. I mentioned Saka. He's 216. And the biggest, one of the biggest risers, really, going from unranked to number 240 in the nation, picked up an offer from Penn State while he was on campus during the Rutgers game, Darren Ikenigbon. So, there's a lot of movement in that 2025 class when it comes to targets. You know, I think it's it's an indication that Penn State is recruiting, you know, at a high level that we could zone in on those guys as top targets. And the many of the names that I named, Penn State has a realistic chance with those guys at this point early on. Yeah, a lot of familiar names from from last uh, last summer's camp lists and guys that we expect to see back uh, on the camp circuit, but really not looking at camps as much as you are official visits because that window opens up for this group next spring all of a sudden and they hit the forefront. Remember the 2024 class you know, finishing up their, their senior seasons. You got some some All-American events coming up, but the, the curtain's almost closed on them. They've got their signing day celebrations and all that, but this 2025 class, the group that just finished up their junior season of film. And when James Franklin was uh, referenced in postgame on, Saturday, uh, on Friday out in Detroit that a big priority this week for them was going to be hammering out a lot of film review I know a huge part of that on their plate was junior season film because that is often the the defining year in a high school prospects uh you know career because uh, you look at maybe freshman and sophomore that early success may garner some offers but if you don't sustain it your junior year a lot of those offers all of a sudden they're not committable anymore 
And then there's guys who didn't pick up the freshman and sophomore offers. And all of a sudden they're risers after their junior year. So there's a mix of names out there that Penn State's trying to figure out how they want to set that target board, how they want to go out and visit guys and prioritize guys. And then coming up on into winter, those junior days are always such a huge deal because there's a lot of them hanging out in the region. You want these guys to get to your campus and, and start to build those relationships and set the stage for official visits and commitments come 2024 for this 2025 class. Tyler Caparuso, I want to get over to the transfer portal in a moment, but before we do that, you also had a story up at lines247.com about early enrollees for the 2024 class. I just said you know, it, it's about over for them on the recruiting trail. The late December, early signing periods coming up, and then many of them will follow that up within a matter of weeks by enrolling here at the university. In fact, I believe the number you have it at was 17 early enrollees. I mean, we know it's become commonplace, but it's now becoming kind of an outlier to not be the guy who shows up to a college campus in January. If you're going to your prom in high school in, in May, you're kind of in the in the uh, minority at this point compared to some of these guys who are getting their college careers started so early. Yeah, one of the comments on that article is it might have been more efficient to make a list of guys who aren't enrolling early. At this point. <laughs> I, I agree with that sentiment. And to be completely honest, I mean, 17, that's set to be the largest number of expected early enrollees in James Franklin's tenure at Penn State. You know, it's kind of just a changing of the time. More and more guys want to get to town early. They want to get enrolled for that spring semester. They want to get in and be part of the program as early as they can to get an inside track at competing for playing time. And, you know, that 17 number could change. You know, sometimes guys either late they decide they don't want to do it or they can't do it for mm -hmm. academic reasons. You know, sometimes the credits just don't line up and, you know, it is what it is when that happens. None of Penn State's 2024 commits are in any sort of academic danger or anything like that. It's really just a matter of getting things done in a certain period of time. You know, sometimes that falls through. It, we've seen it happen in the past cycle, so maybe it happens again, maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But – that 17 number, I mean, it's the majority of the class. You know, you got Ethan Gronkemeyer is going to get to campus. Quentin Martin's going to be on campus. Almost the entire group of offensive linemen is going to be on campus. Almost the entire group of defensive linemen is going to be on campus. The but best Harvey, end, the top ranked tight end in America is yeah, coming to campus. Exactly. Like, it's just everyone who, not everyone, but the mo some of the most notable names. Receiver the is the one I know that that yeah. some people commented on, on your piece. And I will also add to that because as of now, Josiah Brown is the one expected to be on campus in January, correct? Yes. Yeah. Josiah so. Brown, of course, if, if you followed our coverage and we mentioned on the podcast before, he had a pretty significant injury suffered as a senior that's going to require a rehabilitation process. It's a beautiful thing that that re rehabilitation process will continue and be completed on a power five campus with all the resources available from a medical and training staff. But at a position room that we know needs some immediate help and, and, and some immediate opportunities there, um, the other guys, Peter Gonzalez and Tysir Denmark, uh, very productive senior seasons, uh, going to have to wait a little bit longer as things stand now to make their way into Marcus Hagan's room. Yeah, and I mean, I understand, you know, maybe the eye-opening element of that, but I'm not sure any of those, either of those guys, you know, would have produced his true freshman regardless of when they get to campus i think some they might be a year away that group and that's fine because penn state could just go into the portal as it did last offseason to get maybe a more immediate fix at the position you know that's something that they're obviously looking to accomplish this offseason. but we'll, we'll get into that back back to the early enrollees i mean defensively almost the entire group is going to be in time I mean, you got the two cornerbacks from florida antoine belgrave shorter and john mitchell 
they're going to be in town. Vabu Torre, the safety from Jersey, he's going to be getting there early. So there's going to be a lot of youth in Penn State's weight room this in January and throughout this spring semester. And I think Chuck Lowe's is really excited to get those guys to town, you know, start molding them. Because a lot of the members of Penn State's 2024 recruiting class have really impressive physical frames early on. You know, Cooper Cousins is a guy who looks like he's going to play in the Big Ten right now. But there's, you know, obviously Donovan Harbour, you know, he's not going to be in early. He's another guy. You know, the clay is there. It just has to be molded. And that, you know, Chuck Lowe's is going to have the chance to do that starting in January with a large majority of these guys. And by now, there's certainly a blueprint for this because they have had these huge waves of early enrollees come through. Now, the freshman class in this instance in the 2023 year has not produced a ton of results on the field. Part of that is because this team brought back a lot of depth in key positions and there wasn't necessarily a need for them to get on the field. But you look at the 2022 class and and, and that was another big wave of early enrollees and how many of them ended up playing huge roles on the way to the Rose Bowl. Ten guys burned red shirts. The majority of them were on campus in January did get those spring balls, did get the, the winter conditioning under their belt. So those are the things that you gain, not just being around and being on campus. You're, you're really taking those crucial steps forward, logging the practices, the bad ones and the good ones, because they both matter and they both stack up. And if you can get the bad ones out of the way early before you get to preseason camp, you can do yourself a lot of favors. So we'll be keeping tabs on this freshman class, but certainly they're going to face not just competition from the uh, returners and the holdovers from this roster, but there's going to be some new faces that come to town that have accomplished some things at the college level elsewhere, Tyler. And that leads us to that transfer portal conversation. The portal window in the postseason officially opens across college football on December 4th. So it's going to be a big weekend coming up. You've got December 2nd, Saturday, conference championships playing out across the country. you got the next Sunday, December 3rd, where we're going to learn who those four teams are in the college football playoff, where Penn State and everybody else is going to be playing their bowl games. And then the very next day, we're going to see the floodgates open with the transfer portal. We're not going to focus on who's leaving this program. I think that's in bad taste, and and, and those conversations can be had elsewhere. Uh, we will certainly address the individuals who do leave this program or enter the portal when they do that. But let's talk about the potential incoming components of this 2024 roster, Tyler. And there's a few positions that I think we both agreed. When you're putting together your piece, you reached out to me, kind of bounced off some ideas. And th these positions stand out. we got to start with wide receiver, an obvious priority. They went to the well there last winter. Came away with two guys who had starting experience at the FBS level. One of them, Malik McLean out of Florida State, uh, carrying junior eligibility to campus. The other, uh, Dante Cephas uh, out of Kent State, two-time All-Mac performer there, uh, bringing eligibility for this year. And then with the COVID eligibility, can stay in town next season. He has started the tail stretch of the season here uh, with Harrison Wallace on available. Uh, impressive game against Maryland. Overall, the numbers have relatively been lacking though compared to what we thought you might get out of a wide receiver at 2000 uh, just about 2000 receiving yards the last couple of seasons at kent state and with malik mclean flashes early had a touchdown against west virginia but now to this point very much a background figure in the receiver conversation a guy who's also carved out a bit of a role for himself on special teams but you get to the finish line here and those numbers aren't going to look like what you hope they might penn state's not going to shy away from going back to that well though tyler and at wide receiver this is a position that annually gets loaded up with some top-tier talent because it is not a patient position nationally. Guys do not like waiting for their opportunities to catch passes, and there's also a lot of offenses out there in flux with some coaching moves. So early on, what are you hearing and what are you kind of projecting for Penn State's involvement at this position? Upgrading a wide receiver is probably the 
priority of the offseason across the board. I mean, Penn State just needs to get more explosive at the position. You know, that's not some inside info or hard-hitting analysis. It's just kind of facts. You know, you, you watch what transpired on the field this offseason. You look at the room, Marcus Hayes inherited, and they want to get better. And the portal will be an opportunity for Penn State to do that. You know, exit meetings are going on, you know, throughout this week, and some tough conversations are probably going to be had. But, you know, Penn State has the opportunity to add at least, obviously, at least one receiver, possibly multiple receivers via the transfer portal. I mean, right now, in terms of movement with guys expected to enter the portal, we haven't heard a whole lot beyond Texas A&M's Ray Cottrell, who has heard from, honestly, it seems like pretty much every program in the nation who needs a receiver. His list, when he caught up with Chris Hummer, was lengthy. And that was, I believe, what, 24 hours after he announced that he was planning on hitting the portals. So that speaks to, you know, how many programs out there are looking for wideouts and help in the position. It's not just Penn State. So there's going to be a hell of a lot of competition for these top wideouts who do hit the portal. I just think that, you know, Penn State is in a position, they're in a unique position getting a new coordinator on board because, you know, it kind of resets things with transfer wide receivers. You know, you have this new offensive vision and new offensive philosophy to sell. But at the same time, something that could potentially be used against Penn State on the trail is, you know, look, they brought in two receivers via the portal this past offseason, and those guys just didn't get it done. Some programs had more success with portal wide receivers. So those programs could point to that and say, do you want to go here where we have this, you know, noted success of getting the most out of portal wide receivers? Or do you want to go to Penn State where they welcomed in two guys who, quite frankly, did not live up to the expectations? You know, that's something that could potentially be used against Penn State. You know, we'll see if that pops up. But I think that Penn State does still have a lot to sell to transfer portal wide receiver targets. You know, I mentioned the new coordinator, and, you know, that could excite a lot of guys. You know, some transfer portal targets, they want to be the face of an offense, and they would have the chance to come to Penn State and be the face of the wide receiver room, depending on the caliber of the player. Still got Drew Aller coming back for another year. And, you know, there's still – Plenty of talent there, and guys want to play with talented quarterbacks, and that's what Drew Aller is. So, yeah, I think that Penn State will be very, very active at wide receiver. They're going to be active at multiple positions, but like I said, wide receiver probably the priority for the staff at this point. Maybe yet another wrinkle to consider in the bowl game performance from this offense and how Drew Aller looks is what that might mean to a wide receiver, a prospective wide receiver uh, transfer out there. Um, because we talked about if 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 they really hit hit their stride this year with Mike Yersich and Drew Aller and this offense took a, a major step forward and you saw the passing game be dynamic, what that would do for you. Here we are. It didn't happen that way. And, and, and we have to be honest about that. But uh, you finish on a high note at Michigan State. Obviously, Drew Aller going on the record in postgame and saying he's committed to this program for 2024 is a very good step forward as well. He's going to get a chance, though, against a very good opponent in about a month to go out there and put together 60 minutes of football. I will note there have been times we've seen Penn State go into the transfer portal and pick up a commitment before they even get to the bowl yeah. game. I think a, a few years ago they had John Lovett. And that was coming off of the COVID season, so I, I don't know if that disrupts things, but they had John Lovett, a Baylor wider, uh, running back transfer, committing to them before Christmas. So these things could move quickly if there's a good fit for both sides. Last year, we didn't see Penn State add wide receivers until the winter, uh, and, and Dante Cephas and Malik McClain both committing in January. And, and I will note this. We did not see Marcus Higgins personally add any of those trans uh, scholarship wide receivers to the roster in year one. Those were predating him. Both of those commits on the transfer uh, circuit and then the freshman Carmelo Taylor signed, obviously, before uh, he was hired, before Taylor Stubblefield was fired. 
the offensive line is a spot that you have noted uh, before. And, and there's a few things in play here that, that could tip the scales and how aggressive Penn State gets. And they involve decisions that need to be made. I think one decision is made. It just isn't official yet. Olu Fashion is going to maybe be the top offensive tackle off the board in the 2024 NFL draft. He's not going to shock the world again and come back for year five here in Happy Valley. But year six is in play for your starting right tackle and your starting right guard. So Lee Wormley, Caden Wallace, each of them told us this past week leading up to the Michigan State matchup that they had not determined their plans for 2024. Caden Wallace has really helped himself. He's become a, a, certainly a draftable offensive tackle with the body of work he's put together in year five. Salim Wormley has played a ton of football. He's been involved in that three-man guard rotation. He's a two-year starter for you. Caden Wallace is a four-year starter. So noting that we don't quite know what's going to happen with them, we know Hunter Norzad is moving on at center. And then you also understand that you've got J.B. Nelson, you've got Vega Ioane, you've got those freshman pieces from last year. And then there's some kind of muddled waters where, where you've got uh, guys who have been around for a bit and haven't broken through. Golden Israel Achumba, um, Abraham Traore, guys that have been really good teammates and then they've been scout team members and they've gotten it done. But to this point, and now they're through year four, uh, they have not emerged up that depth chart. Nick Dawkins is the one guy who has that chance from that 2020 class, it seems, to really step up and maybe fill a starter's role next year in year five on campus. So I wanted to kind of give a good lay of the land there. Uh, when it comes to immediate solutions, though, it's about trusting Drew Shelton at tackle, which they do. It's about developing that trust for Javen Williams, Anthony Donka, Alex Birchmeyer is a guy who has not been involved in game action. Chimdi Ono saw a bit of game action, considered more of a project. So – None of them, except except really Drew Shelton, I think you can say, yeah, that's a plug-and-play situation as a starting lineman next year without noting that there's going to be a bunch of development that occurs between now and next September. So, Tyler, there's the tale of what's happening in the offensive line room right now for Phil Troutwine. Depth is in a very good spot, but proven commodities not necessarily there, especially if you were to lose Wormley, Wallace, or both. Yeah, Penn State likes what it has in-house with the young guys, but – you know, more experience out there is to be had in the portal. I think that's something that appeals to Phil Trowin at this point in the offseason. You know, you want to always have the best possible offensive line depth that you could have. And, you know, the portal allows you to go out and pursue that kind of depth. You know, there's always going to be veteran offensive linemen available for the taking in the portal. Now, the caveat there is, you know, I mean, every program in the nation pretty much wants offensive line depth. And the same goes for the defensive line conversation as well. So now that the transfer portal is what it is, me and you, every single offseason are probably going to be talking about the offensive line, the defensive line. The, yep. the, there's probably no way that we're not. Re regardless of how good Penn State's O-line or D-line might be, those two positions, they're going to be ones that we're talking about. And on the offensive line, you're already starting to see some high-level, you know, Ivy League guys are hitting the portal. We've no. seen that before. Yeah, we have Hunter Norzad. And again, I'm sure Penn State would Eric love Wilson. Him. I mean, we Eric Wilson before yeah. him from Harvard, and then Hunter Norzad to more success out of Cornell. I mean, you know, really, Penn State would love to hit that iron again. But, you know, there's some intriguing names there. There are going to be some intriguing Power 5 names in the portal as well. But I think that at tackle specifically, you know, I'm not closing the door on the potential for an interior addition, but I think Penn State would like to add a tackle, you know, maybe a more experienced player at the position will be the preference.
Yeah, and, and, and you, depending on if you were to lose Caden Wallace, if you do lose Caden Wallace, you've got two tackle yeah, spots cool, to fill, and you've got a guy who they think can be a starter at both both of them and Drew Shelton, and then you're kind of managing how do you feel about Javon Williams on the left side, whereas Jim Ono, it does feel like tackle is going to need a piece, whether it's yeah. a starter for you, a guy that's going to push the start, or a guy that's going to be a realistic, viable number two option. Um, because we talked about some of the tackles they're bringing in and some of those interesting body shapes, but there are developmental tackles, I, I would say, in, in that 2024 class. Guys that I'm really curious to see what they look like in 2025 and 2026. I'm not sure if you know October, November 2024 Big Ten games is going to be the right setting for some of those freshmen coming in on, on board. But look, we've seen guys put themselves in solid positions as freshmen, as tackles in recent years with Drew Shelton, with Javon Williams, and 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 you know we'll have to account for some freshmen factoring on that depth chart. You mentioned the defensive line. Deion Barnes has gotten a long look at this group as the position coach, but he was part of the process in, in adding some of these guys to the room and certainly in helping with their progression to this point. He's been around this program long enough, and, and he has roots in that room. So you're in a good spot. I'm curious at this point, how well does Deion Barnes have a feel for who's staying or, or who's going? Because much like we discussed with Wormley and with Wallace, there are guys who have been around the program since 2019 who could either decide to take their shot at the next level of football, decide that they're you know, ready to move on college life in general, or say, hey, year six sounds good. If Nittany Lions are up for it, I'm on board too. Guys like Devon Ellis, a starter for you at defensive tackle. Hakeem Beeman, he has started plenty of games for you at defensive tackle. Smith Vilbert, who's been sidelined all this season and was sidelined all of last season for different reasons until the Rose Bowl. He has been at every single practice we've seen wearing his jersey paying close attention. So it feels like what we've heard in the past about Vilbert returning as a year six guy at defensive end is probably still on that path. So again, with some possibilities there, Alonzo Ford, by the way, a transfer pickup from old dominion last year, he ends up missing the entire season. So he's going to be you know, kind of restocked into that conversation, but you got to keep hammering it. And doesn't it feel like, especially at the edge position, Arnold Ebikade, he was a first-team All-Big Ten performer here a couple years ago, got picked in the second round by the Atlanta Falcons, spent one season with Penn State after preceding his career with the Temple Owls. I saw him on Sunday pick up a sack there with the Atlanta Falcons. You've got Chop Robinson making his case as a potential first-round pick. He came way via the transfer portal. When you got sequential pickups like this. I know they didn't dip into the edge rusher spot, but to me, they have way too much to sell with a former high-level edge rusher in the Big Ten at Penn State himself, Deion Barnes, to make that pitch. I think they need to target high here uh, at the edge rusher spot. I think if the opportunity presents itself to, high, to add a high-level edge, you know, that's something that they'll explore. But most of the conversations that I've had so far really have centered around the interior and adding another body there. Penn State's good on numbers right now in the defensive line. You know, that there's not really a lack of depth in right. terms of numbers, so that's not necessarily a concern for Barnes and company right now. But they want to get another deep interior defensive lineman in there. So he's going to be doing some evaluating and getting to work on that. And I'm glad you mentioned Ford because you kind of look at that as a portal addition in a sense, you know, given the fact that he missed all of 2023 and didn't get the chance to suit up. He might have been maybe a year away from contributing anyways. He looked to add a little bit more weight and bulk up the play on the interior in the Big Ten. But so now you have him back in the equation, but they still want to go out and get interior guy. But I do think that Penn State, you said it best. I mean, Penn State has a lot, hell of a lot to sell on the edge. I think the opportunity, if it's the right fit, maybe that's something Penn State pursues. But early on, before the portal has even you know really opened, most of my conversation have centered around adding on the interior. Yeah, 
I just think that with with receiver, for instance, you're selling a vision. I agree. And, and with with edge rusher, you're selling evidence. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's a big difference. And obviously, with the NIL, uh, you know, it, it's tougher than just that. It's not as cut and dried as oh, I want this top player at this position. You have to have some pretty <laughs> engaged conversations these days about how it's going to work and getting guys to your campus. And you do have a former five star who has looked the part largely in denied Dennis Sutton stepping up as a junior next year. You've got guys like Amin Vanover, Zariah Fisher, the freshman Jameel Lyons, who they're very high on. And then if you're, you are to add Smith Vilbert, who we've seen uh, you know, flash at times, but it's been a long time since we've had any sustained look at him. Um, there's a lot of pieces there, but there's no one that I think you just say, well, that guy's going to be able to, to, to really step up and, and deliver monster performances. Dynan Sutton is in his own category because he has been a third starter all this season. But I think a lot of this is how much does Deion Barnes have confidence in some of those other names I mentioned, and I think they do have a lot of confidence. And if we don't see them prioritize edge rusher, then that's going to speak volumes about how they feel about the depth there. And Shop Robinson hasn't announced his decision. We know Adiza Isaac is off to the NFL, and he's going to help himself a lot with what he did this year. But Shop Robinson has not announced his final verdict on 2024 yet. Let's finish up with the position that Penn State actually addressed twice in the last cycle. Um, lost one of them and they had to get another one. Storm Duck initially was the pickup at cornerback out of North Carolina. He stuck around for spring ball and decided it was time to go elsewhere. He landed back in the ACC. Uh, and, and then we've got uh, a, a, the pickup of Aldavian Collins that came after that. He's been a guy who's contributed a bit on special teams, not on defense. Um, and, and he's a bit more of a developmental prospect where Storm Duck was a, a one and done plug and play kind of guy. Aldavian Collins fits the profile of, of picking up a high school prospect after a year of, uh, of refinement at the college level. He redshirted at Mississippi State. Then you get him. So you're essentially getting a guy who's just barely crossing that bridge from high school prospect to college contributor. You still think that cornerback remains a vocal point this year. And I think that's for a good reason, because Kaylin King. Uh, certainly has incentives to move on to the NFL uh, coming off of his junior year. Johnny Dixon is moving on after three really impressive seasons here, getting better uh, along the way after his transfer from South Carolina. And then Daquan Hardy is another one of those year six potential guys next year. But with all the football he's played on defense and what he's shown as a punt returner right now, you know, you can certainly understand why Daquan Hardy wouldn't want to spend a sixth season at the college level. So that leaves you maybe missing your top three guys that they've leaned on and at times started all three of them. Yeah, and Daquan Hardy, he's a huge wild card in this situation because th that's a decision that is yet to be made. It's something he's still pondering. If Penn State gets him back, it kind of goes without saying how mm -hmm. huge of an addition it would be to that cornerback room for 2024. But think about it like this. You know, Penn State went after Sion Laleo, the junior college prospect, who wound up at Oregon so hard because there is pl immediate playing time available for the taking. You know, Penn State profiles as being younger in the secondary next season. You know, Cam Miller is a guy who's poised to step into a big role. Elliot Washington and Zion Tracy, the pair of true freshmen. I, Tracy could end up a starter next season when it's all said and done, depending on how things play out. I wouldn't put it past Elliot Washington to work his way into that conversation either. I really love his skills and what he brings to the secondary. But I think Terry Smith is definitely going to be active in going out and searching for potentially a more experienced cornerback to add to his depth chart. I think that would just benefit the position group overall. You know, anytime you could add an experienced quarter, I mean, think about the impact that Johnny Dixon has made in his time on campus. If Penn State could go out and land a potential power five transfer who has maybe even played a little bit at that program, it'd be a boon for the cornerback room. And that's not to say Penn State doesn't have a solid group right now, even with the losses they do. But anytime you can upgrade and bring in a veteran at the position who could really help you right off the bat, 
it's something that Penn State's going to explore, and I expect Terry Smith will be doing that search throughout the offseason. I don't know if that means two cornerback additions. Like last offseason, I mean, maybe it's one. If Storm Duck sticks around, you know, we don't know. We can't go back in time and see, you know, how that would have played out. But I think, you know, definitely one at the position is possible. And and it, you know, I think this is another spot where you're working from a position of strength. You've got one of the most stable rooms in this entire program. Terry Smith has been here since the beginning with James Franklin. He has sent guys off to the NFL. Joey Porter Jr. is flourishing right now for the most part with the Pittsburgh Steelers as that 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 first pick of the second round this past year. And then you had a preseason All-American in Kalen King, and you've had a transfer success story there. So there is a lot to sell at the cornerback spot. Uh, we'll see what Penn State does in these next few weeks. What they do will be covered uh, ever at lines247.com in detail. We have a lot coming your way from the transfer portal. That includes the comings and the goings from this roster. Uh, when that happens, we'll also address it here on the podcast. But I think kind of a, a good tune-up here, kind of setting the stage, uh, Tyler Calvaruso, and letting people know just a little bit about where we think Penn State's thinking about priorities from a positional standpoint. Uh, I think it's worth noting as well, special teams, punter, play sticker. Yes. They went and got new starters, uh, as it turned out, last offseason. One of them is definitely done, Alex Falcons, who has put together one of the most impressive, if not the most impressive, seasons as a kicker from a, from an accuracy standpoint that, that Penn State has had. Um, and then you look at Riley Thompson, uh, the punter who, who's been largely effective, you know, hasn't really had a pickup kind of a game along the way. Um, and, and and we're just not quite sure. He's got a little bit of a, a different background coming from Australia where he played a different sport. And so there, there's some eligibility questions there and, and whether he can return 2024. But the only other scholarship punter they have available is Alex Paquetta. And he has been your third string guy for much of the season he hasn't been he hadn't traveled to some of these road games so you wonder where the confidence is in with Paquetta right now and and then you know Sanders Sahadak has been tucked away since he got benched in week one as your scholarship cook kicker there with Alex Falcons taking over the job so other spots to keep in mind as well Tyler Calvaruso appreciate the perspective as always on recruiting on the portal hopefully people are checking out your work at lines247.com on a daily basis Thanks, man. Just to close on your point about the specialists, I do expect them to add a specialist this offseason. I don't know if that's going to come from the high school ranks or the portal, but I do expect an addition at specialists at some point this offseason. Good stuff. Tyler Calvaruso, we'll catch you soon. Thanks, man. All right. For the entire team here at Lines 24-7, we came to you with about an hour and a half show today. Uh, so we, we packed a lot into it. You may have noticed we weren't around on Monday. If you didn't hear us on the postgame podcast, Monday podcasts are off the schedule uh, for the time being moving forward because we're in our postseason uh, move now. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays are when you can expect us to drop new episodes of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Obviously, no post-game podcast right now until we get to that bowl matchup. Uh, but appreciate everyone who's hung with us for those four-episode structures going all the way back uh, to the first week of September. It's been a lot of fun. Daniel Gallen, Mark Brennan obviously helped me every step of the way. Tyler Calvaruso hopping on. Uh, and our opposing uh, viewpoints have been huge, too. A big thanks to all the beat reporters from all 12 teams that Penn State faced during the regular season. We managed to find somebody to come onto the podcast and help preview them uh, for us. So big thanks. We got through the regular season. Obviously, as we covered here in the last hour and a half, there is still a lot on the table uh, that we're going to get to here on the podcast. And over at lines247.com, we're all note. You can check until Monday, until Tuesday night here. It's extended Cyber Monday deal, 75% off 
an annual VIP subscription to Lions247.com that ends Tuesday at midnight. So sorry for getting to this one on a Wednesday or a Thursday. We are back Thursday with episode number two for this week. We'll break down the all big 10 teams that have been announced and we'll discuss what we're hearing uh, from Penn State team facilities regarding players, regarding the coaching movement. A lot to get to right here in the Lions 24-7 podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Donahue stepping aside. We'll talk to you real soon. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.